welcome to the Murder and Mystery Podcast. I'm your host, Summer. In honor of Pride Month, I just couldn't let it go by without doing a special story. And I figured what is more special than the icon that changed America's thoughts and laws on rights and equality. So I wanted to bring you the story of Matthew Shepard. Now I want to give a trigger warning. Uh, Most of my stories should have a trigger warning, but this does include a lot of violence and some of it's a little graphic. So I do want to warn you in advance, just so that if you don't want to hear that as we get closer to that part you might skip through that a little bit I will warn you again Uh, but Matthew Shepard was born on December 1st 1976 in Casper Wyoming to Judy and Dennis Shepard he had a younger brother Logan who was born in 1981 He was close to his family. He had a very close relationship with his brother. And they were pretty much a normal family. I mean, normal as in they were a close family. They did their thing. There wasn't anything really that stood out about them. He attended school at Crest Hill Elementary. He went to Dean Morgan Junior High and then went to Natron County High School for his freshman through junior years of high school. He was a very small kid. He was not athletic. And he was often teased and targeted for bullying for this because he was really small. He was thin. He was wiry. He wasn't very athletic. He looked childish. He wore braces from the age of 13 until the day he died. He just was a small guy, partially because of his small nature and because he was not very athletic and stuff. He became really interested in politics at a young age. And in the summer of 1994, Matthew's father was hired by Saudi Aramco, and the family moved to Saudi Arabia. They resided in Saudi Aramco residential camp in Duran. Now, in Saudi Arabia, there was not an American school at that time so matthew and his brother went to the american school in switzerland and this was an international boarding school and so he completed his senior year there and graduated in may of 1995 Uh, when he was there he was very outgoing he was a peer-to-peer counselor he had friends You know, he was known for being very compassionate, standing up for others, and just being an all-around nice guy. When he graduated, he attended college, or started college in Capua, 
College in Salisbury, North Carolina. And then he transferred to Casper College in Casper, Wyoming. And this is like a community college. And then to the University of Wyoming, where he was a first-year political science major with a minor in languages. He was chosen as a representative for Wyoming Environmental Council. He was described as being very optimistic. He was open to new challenges. He was very relatable to almost everybody. He stood up for others and he wanted to stand up for the acceptance of people's differences. He was very passionate about equality and his friends described him as being tender-hearted and kind. He just really loved other people and stood up for other people and was always there for others. But Matthew also had his demons, kind of like everybody. You know, in 1995, he was beaten and raped during a high school trip to Morocco. And after this, he experienced severe depression and panic attacks. And this is totally understandable. I mean, anybody who goes through something like that would suffer from depression and probably have panic attacks. And, you know, that is very traumatic. He was hospitalized numerous times for clinical depression and suicidal ideation during this time. And after he graduated high school, some of his friends feared that he became involved with drugs. He just really had a hard time with this. This was very difficult for him, and he had a really hard time getting over that trauma. And that is very understandable. That is horrific trauma to try and get over. So you have this guy who is openly gay. He's 21 years old. He's this young guy in college. He is battling this depression and stuff, but he's still pretty outgoing. He's still very likable. He has lots of friends, and he's really trying to get past this. So on the night of October 6, 1998, Matthew had gone to a meeting of the campus LGBT student group, and then he went alone to the Fireside Lounge in Laramie, Wyoming. He's sitting at the bar alone, drinking a beer, and he is approached by two men, Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson. They buy a pitcher of beer and strike up a conversation with Matthew. And they're just sitting there and they're talking and, you know, Henderson and McKinney are drinking their pitcher of beer and Matthew's drinking his bottle of beer and they are talking and well shortly after midnight these two men offer to give him a ride home and Matthew accepts. So the three men leave the bar just after midnight and Matthew thinks they're going back to his place. But instead of taking him there, they drive him to a rural area. 
In later testimony from McKinney and corroboration from Henderson, they say that the men all got out of the truck in this rural area and McKinney tells Matthew that the two men are not gay and they had no plans of going back to his place. Instead, they were going to rob him. And at that point, McKinney begins to punch Matthew. He punches him in the face and then he takes out a pistol and starts to pistol whip him. And trigger warning, this is where the violence really begins and starts to get pretty bad. McKinney starts pistol whipping Matthew. And at some point, Matthew ends up backed up against a fence where McKinney continues beating him. It is thought that he was struck between 19 and 21 times. They then tied him to the fence, robbed him of all of his belongings, including his shoes, and left him in near freezing temperatures. Matthew was left on this fence for 18 hours. He was unconscious when he was found. In fact, he would never become conscious again. He was in a coma. He was so bloody and disheveled that the cyclist that found him, that just happened to be riding his bike past that area and fell in that area, fell on his bike. He's riding his bike and he fell. And when he fell, he saw what he thought was a scarecrow tied to this fence. And when he looked closer, he realized that the scarecrow appeared to be breathing and had blood on it. And so he went closer and realized that this was a person and ran to the nearest residence to call for help. When police arrived, they found that he was alive, but he was in a coma. And Matthew's face was covered and caked in blood, except for paths where his tears had made tracks. And I remember this. I remember hearing about this when this first happened and that being one of the things that kept being said about how his face was just covered in blood you couldn't really see his face except for the two tracks where the tears had cleaned the blood off and to me that just is was so hard to hear Reggie Flutie was the first officer on the scene she had initially used gloves to check Matthew, but her supply was really low. And remember, he had blood just caked everywhere. He had been beaten so much, and she was trying to check to make sure, you know, he was still alive. And she was trying to clear his airway and ended up having to use her bare hands. The next day, she found out that Matthew was HIV positive. So, that had to be really scary for her. However, after taking an antiretroviral medication, um, she did test negative. 
she did not catch HIV, which is good. Matthew's mother reported later that she learned of his HIV status while he lay dying in the hospital. So she didn't even know that he was HIV positive. Because of Matthew's head wounds, he was taken to Podre Valley Hospital in Fort Collins, Colorado. This was an advanced trauma hospital. They found that he had suffered fractures to the back of his head and to the front right ear, like right around his ear. And one of the blows had it had caused him to experience severe brainstem damage. And this affected his ability to regulate his heart rate, his body temperature, and vital functioning. There were dozens of lacerations on his head, face, and neck. And his injuries were deemed too severe for doctors to operate. Because of that brainstem damage, they knew he wasn't going to make it. He never regained consciousness. When Matthew was found, this became national news. And candlelight vigils were held around the world while he was in intensive care. Matthew was pronounced dead six days later after the attack. It was October 12, 1998 at 12.53 a.m. He was only 21 years old. So let's go back to that night on October 6th. After Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson tied Matthew to the fence and left him to die, they returned to town with the intent of going to Matthew's house and robbing his house. But they didn't go to the right place. They ended up going to the wrong area and had a run-in with two young men 19-year-old Emiliano Morales and 18-year-old Jeremy Herrera. During this fight, McKinney and Morales both became injured, and the police were called because of this fight. When the police came, they arrested Henderson and McKinney for assaulting Morales and Herrera. But they also did a search of McKinney's truck. And this is when they found a blood-smeared gun, shoes, ID, and credit cards belonging to Matthew Shepard. So they knew that Morales and Herrera were not the only people that these two had assaulted, that they had harmed somebody else. So they had this evidence already. So after their arrest for the assault, McKinney and Henderson called their girlfriends and told them to help them get rid of evidence of Matthew. They also asked them to supply them with alibis. Of course, they didn't know that the police already had some of this evidence of the assault. But they wanted them to help them get rid of any of the other evidence, any evidence that they had, and to supply them with alibis. 
So when Matthew was found 18 hours later, police didn't hesitate because they had already found that evidence. They knew who had been involved in that attack. So they automatically arrested McKinney and Henderson and charged them with assault. And their girlfriends, Kristen Price and Chastity Paisley, were also charged with accessory after the fact since they had helped dispose of evidence and tried to cover the crime by supplying alibis that the police knew were false. So Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson were initially arrested and charged with attempted murder, kidnapping, and aggravated robbery. But after Matthew's death, the charges were upgraded to first-degree murder, and this meant they were eligible for the death penalty. During McKinney's pre-trial hearing in November 1998, Sergeant Rob Debris testified that McKinney had stated in an interview on October 9th that he had pretended to be gay to lure Matthew Shepard into his truck with the intent of robbing him. And McKinney stated that he had attacked Matthew after Matthew had put his hand on his knee. So they started building this, you know, it was a hate crime. It was because Matthew was gay. They had, they knew this, they lured him into the truck, and this was part of the reason that they had targeted him. Another detective, Ben Fritzen, testified that during an interview with Kristen Price, who was McKinney's girlfriend, she told the detective McKinney's violence against Matthew was triggered by how he felt about gays. In December 1998, Chastity Paisley pled guilty for accessory after the fact to first-degree murder. On April 5, 1999, Russell Henderson pled guilty to murder and kidnapping charges and in order to avoid the death penalty. He agreed to testify against McKinney. He received two consecutive life terms. At Henderson's trial, his lawyer uh, argued that Matthew was not targeted because he was gay. He said that they did not do this because he was gay. They just wanted to rob him. They wanted money and possibly some drugs. Aaron McKinney's trial was held October and November of 1999. His girlfriend, Kristen Price, testified at this trial that the intent was to rob Matthew Shepard, not to kill him. McKinney and Henderson had only pretended to be gay to lure him into the truck so that they could rob him, but violence was never the intent, was what she had said. McKinney's attorney used the gay panic defense, arguing that he was driven temporarily insane due to unwanted sexual advances by Matthew. So, remember, they had pretended to be gay to pick him up. They had struck up these conversations, they had drank with him, and then they had offered to give him a ride and go back to his place. So, I don't know what Matthew was supposed to think here. I mean, they were picking him up, but 
this was unwanted sexual advances and he didn't know that they weren't gay because they were pretending to be gay. They were pretending that this was what they were wanting and they were going back to his place. So this was all a ruse that they had come up with. The prosecutor argued McKinney had premeditated the murder spurred by greed and violence and not by Matthew's sexual orientation. He argued that the two men just wanted money and to kill someone. It didn't matter what sexual orientation they were. So he argued that they showed up at the bar with the intent to rob and kill somebody. They didn't care who it was. They saw Matthew at the bar and they decided to rob him. They realized he was gay, so they used that as a ploy to rob him and kill him. Okay, so the jury found McKinney guilty of not premeditated murder because he had not gone into the bar looking for someone to murder, but felony murder because he had killed him and began to deliberate the death penalty. However, Matthew's parents became involved with this sentencing, and they got a deal for McKinney to receive two life sentences instead of the death penalty without the possibility of parole. And then following the trial, Kristen Price, McKinney's girlfriend, pled guilty to a reduced charge of misdemeanor interference with the police investigation. So you remember Henderson and he, his girlfriend actually pled guilty to first-degree murder, accessory to first-degree murder after the fact. And she's, you know, got hers down to just a misdemeanor because she testified, I, I guess, kind of against McKinney. I, I don't know. It didn't kind of seem like she was testifying against McKinney. And Henderson took the death penalty off the table by saying, yes, I did this, and testifying that he did this. But they both ended up getting the same sentence. So Matthew's legacy, really that's where this whole thing goes. Because there's a lot of debate whether or not Matthew's murder was a hate crime. I believe it was. I believe that even if they say their intent was just to rob him, they had plenty of chances to rob him and leave him. They could have taken his money and left him on the side of the road without touching him. They could have walked out to their truck taken his wallet at gunpoint and left and left him there at the bar. I mean, they didn't have to kill him. Even if it was over money or drugs, I think that the actual violence was spurred because of his sexual orientation, which they obviously knew because they used that to get him in their truck. It just seems that that was a big motivator. But Matthew Shepard's death received worldwide attention. Um, some of it good and some of it bad. You know, there was a worldwide candlelight vigil for him while he was in intensive care 
His family got a lot of support, including well wishes from then-President Bill Clinton. And at his funeral, um, there was a representative from the White House at his funeral. But the Westboro Baptist Church also picketed the funeral with messages of hate. And after everything that Matthew had suffered and everything his family was suffering, you know, they had to go and just really make this worse for the family. In June 2019, uh, Matthew was one of the inaugural 50 American Pioneers, Trailblazers, and Heroes inducted into the National LGBTQ Wall of Fame. This is the first national monument dedicated to LGBTQ rights and history. So that's a really big thing. But a few hours after Matthew had been found, his friends Walt Bolden and Alex Trout were like on top of things. They began contacting media organizations they were contacting the police station, they were contacting the county prosecutor, and they were claiming that their friend Matthew had been attacked because he was gay. They said they did not want the fact that he was gay to go unnoticed. Bolden and Trout linked Matthew's assault to the absence of a Wyoming criminal statute providing for hate crime charges. So in the following session, of Wyoming legislature, a bill was introduced that defined certain attacks motivated, motivated by victim sexual orientation as a hate crime. But this measure failed on a 30 to 30 tie. President, or then President Bill Clinton, renewed attempts to extend federal hate crime legislation to include gay people, women, and people with disabilities. A hate crime prevention act was introduced in both the Senate and House of Representatives in November 1997, reintroduced in March of 1999. It passed the Senate only in July of 1999. And in September 2000, both houses passed similar legislation, but it was stripped out of the bill in a conference committee. On March 20th, 2007, the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act was introduced by Democrat John Conyers with 171 co-sponsors. Matthew's parents attended the introduction ceremony. The bill passed the House of Representatives on May 3, 2007, and similar legislation passed the Senate on September 27, 2007, However, then-President George W. Bush indicated he would veto it if it reached his desk. Finally, the act was reintroduced and made its way to the desk of President Barack Obama, who signed it into law on October 28, 2009. So this finally became a law. On October 26, 2018, 20 years after his death, death, Matthew's ashes were interred at the crypt of Washington National Cathedral. He was the first interment of ashes 
of a national figure since Helen Keller's 50 years earlier. Matthew Shepard's tragic death inspired many documentaries, television programs, stage performances, and music, music and books. NBA player Jason Collins wore the jersey 98 in honor of Matthew during his 2012-2013 season with the Boston Celtics and Washington Wizards. He came out as gay the following season. And Matthew's mother, Judy, wrote a biographical book titled The Meaning of Matthew, My Son's Murder in Laramie and, the world trans and a World Transformed. She fought for change in the legal system and helped others and speaks of how she wanted to make her son's loss mean something. Judy and Dennis Shepard started the Matthew Shepard Foundation to help teach parents with children who are gay or may be questioning their sexuality to love and accept them and how to help them and not just throw them away. They travel across the country and the world highlighting the importance of standing up for the LGBTQ community. So Matthew Shepard's death really helped shape legislature and put some laws in place to help protect LGBTQ individuals and really put it out there to start that discussion and help that fight for equality and I think that's really important and I am so glad that his death did mean something because it was such a senseless and horrific death so for something good to come out of that is really important I believe Anyway, this is the death of Matthew Shepard and all the good that came out of that. That's all for this episode, and we will see you or hear from you next time. Bye.